All right. Um, first things first, my mom's been here for like over a month, and it's her last Sunday. <laughs> it's her last Sunday with us. She's so lovely, and she loves our church and loves what God is doing, and she's so sad to leave. Um, she's leaving and going back to London, um, and I was thinking about her, you know, going back to London, and I was like, look, the weather, you know, she was like, oh, it's cold and rainy in London, and I was like, it's been cold and rainy here, <laughs> um, but thankful for you, mum, love you, thanks for all that you've done, yeah, we appreciate you. I don't get to like celebrate Mother's Day in person, so whenever she's here, I kind of just honor her, because I can. I've got a microphone. Anyway, um, grab, the, grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. Um, we've been in a series based on the book of Hebrews entitled Jesus is Better, and it's been a great study so far. We have, what, two weeks left? of Hebrews, and we're going to be done with Hebrews this Sunday, um, we arrive at a really interesting part of Hebrews, and I am sure and certain that God will speak to you. And so, if you are at Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verses 18 to 29, and as always, in our effort to honor God's word, may you stand for the reading of it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 through to 29 reads, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. God, thank you. We say thank you because this opportunity you give us every week to gather is an opportunity that you use 
to help us see and know who you are. Father, what we need most is not more knowledge about ourselves. We don't need more knowledge about anything else other than you. We need to know you. And so this passage, as it unpacks and gives us an understanding of who you are, may we be inspired. May we grow to love you. May we grow to appreciate you because you deserve all of our glory. You deserve all the praise and worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a seat. Have a seat. Verse 18 um, says this. Let me reread it. Read it with me. It says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. Our passage begins with the words, For you. In verse 18, um, the author of Hebrews, what he's doing is he's addressing first century Jewish Christians. Um, this book, Hebrews, it's a piece of literature and it was written, as I said, to first century Jewish Christians. Um, they were Jews that had converted to Christianity. They were Jews who came to believe that Jesus was not just one of their many prophets but he's actually the Messiah, the son of the living God. But this book and the content in it, and especially this part of the book, is not only relevant for first century Jewish Christians, but it's also relevant for us, 21st century Christians. And so uh, what does the author of Hebrews want us to know? He wants us to know, first of all, if you look at verse 18 again, that we've not come to what may be touched. What is this thing that we've come to that may be touched? Um, I'm quoting this verse from the ESV translation of the Bible. And yes, I love the ESV. It's my preferred Bible translation. But there are times when other translations do a better job um, translate in a verse. And so this sentence may be a little hard to understand in the ESV, but it's much easier to understand thanks to the NIV translation of it. And so the NIV actually says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm. And so the author of Hebrews wants us to know that we've not arrived at a physical mountain that's surrounded by a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. And so the question I think you're thinking about is, what is this mountain? What is this mountain? What is this mountain being described? Um, the only mountain that fits this description is Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the famous mountain where God revealed himself in tangible ways and gave his laws to his people through Moses. This historical event is recorded in the book of Exodus chapter 19 and Deuteronomy specifically chapter 4. Not only was Mount Sinai consumed and surrounded by a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, 
Um, if you look at verse 19, we're told that from it, all right, from this mountain also came the sound of a trumpet and the voice of God. The sights and sounds of Mount Sinai at that time terrified the people of Israel so much so that it says in verse 19 that they begged that no further messages be spoken to them. The voice of God that was being heard from Mount Sinai at the time was so terrifying that people begged God to stop talking to them. In other words, they didn't respond with, wow, look at this mountain. Isn't this awesome? Let me take out my phone. <laughs> they didn't have phones. But if they did, let me take out my phone and take a selfie with it. No, they responded with fear. They were terrified of the sights and sounds of Mount Sinai. Furthermore, the appearance of Mount Sinai was so terrifying, even the great and godly Moses was scared to death. Look at verse 21. It says, Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Imagine being there. Imagine being with the Israelites and witnessing Mount Sinai ablaze and God's voice coming from it. Imagine being there. Everything about this picture of Mount Sinai says this. It says, stay away, don't come close, keep your distance. The sights and sounds of Mount Sinai created nothing but fear and trembling in the hearts and minds of God's people. Thankfully, God's people are no longer at the foot of Mount Sinai, a mountain of terror and separation from God. Our relationship with God is not modeled after Israel's experience on Mount Sinai. Rather, God's people have arrived at a different mountain, and this mountain is called Mount Zion, and it is very different from Mount Sinai in so many ways, and it's described in the verses that follow. Look at verses 22 and 23. This is Mount Zion. This is how it's described. It says, but you have not, but, uh, you've not come to a Mount, Mount Sinai, but it says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. In the Bible, Zion can refer to one of three places. It can refer to the name of the hill where the city of Jerusalem is located. It can also refer to the city of Jerusalem itself. But when you see Zion in your Bible, it can also mean the dwelling place of the presence of God. 
Zion then is synonymous in the Bible with being in the presence of God, the eternal city. And so Mount Zion, let's have a look at it again. It's described as the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And within Mount Zion, there exists an innumerable angels in festal gathering, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, God the judge of all, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and God's people being at Mount Zion also means that they have come to Jesus. Look at verse 24, it says, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does this verse mean? It's important for us to take time and understand it because it's a key phrase in this passage. And so the question is, why does Jesus' sprinkled blood, why is Jesus' sprinkled blood a better word than the blood of Abel? Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 4. Turn to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, verses, um, let's read verse 10 to 16. Verse 10 to 16. Um, this is what happens after Cain kills his brother Abel. Um, it says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Verse 15, then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any um, who found him should attack him. Verse 16, and this is important. It says, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So much there. All right. In verse 10, God says to Cain, right, um, what have you done? And God also says to him, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So the question is, what's Abel's blood crying? The context, and we've just read it, helps us to see that Abel's blood is crying for vengeance. Verse 11 and 12, um, let's read it again. And it says, And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened his mouth to receive 
your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to your strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And so this is a part, this is a description of his punishment and the consequences of killing his brother. And then verse 16, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of, um, of Nod, east of Eden. And so um, that's what's happening here is that the voice of Abel's blood is crying out and it's not a message of forgiveness. It's a message of vengeance and condemnation. Okay? And that's what's happening here. Um, the author of Hebrews is basically saying the blood, the sprinkled blood of Jesus, okay, is better than the blood, okay, of Abel, because Abel's blood communicates, and it's a message of vengeance, but Jesus' blood communicates forgiveness. There are two voices speaking. One is the voice of condemnation, and one is the voice of forgiveness and grace. The voice of condemnation is a voice we all hear. You are not good enough. You are a disappointment. You are a failure. You are unlovable. You are beyond hope. You are what you have done. You are what others said about you. You are what others have done to you. They are the voices of condemnation we tend to hear. Um, uh, there's a, a quote from the Biblical Journal, um, Journal of Biblical Counseling says this, that same voice can echo in your ear and speak of your sin. It can be in the background noise in your mind and incently tell you something damning about who you are or who you are not. But the blood of Christ speaks a much different word. It speaks of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. He tells you who you really are, a beloved brother of, or sister, a treasured member of God's family, and his word is the final word, the better word. In other words, if you are a Christian, because of Jesus' perfect life, because of his sacrificial death and victorious resurrection on your behalf, listen to this, the truest message you need to hear and believe is that God's not angry and disappointed with you, but he delights in you, forgives your sins, and will make you perfect for when you stand in his presence. And so my question is, which voice or message have you been listening to? Which one defines you? Is it the loud, pounding, accusing voice of condemnation or the true and better voice of Jesus Christ? R. Kent Hughes says, Abel's warm blood cried from the ground for vengeance and judgment, but Christ's blood shouts that we are forgiven and have peace with God. 
And so, as new covenant believers, we have not come to the old covenant mountain, a place of fire, darkness, gloom, and storm, a place of the trumpet blast and the voice of God as a voice of terrifying judgment. Rather, we have come to the new covenant mountain, Mount Zion. We are citizens of a heavenly Jerusalem, and we're in fellowship with thousands of celebrating angels and members of the church on earth. Jesus is our mediator whose blood speaks well for us. And so the author of Hebrews is using these two mountains to ultimately show us what the relationship between God and his people was like before Jesus and what it is like after his finished work on the cross and his victorious resurrection. And so if you are a Christian, you don't stand terrified in God's presence like the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. Because of Jesus, you stand before God with confidence. You stand before him in view of Mount Zion, your heavenly eternal home, where you will dwell forever in perfect holiness and grace. After Jesus came, um, God welcomes us through Christ into his presence. And so what's your relationship with God like? What's your relationship with God like? Let me ask that again. What's, what's God like to you? What's your view of God? Is God to you like the God of Mount Zion, Sinai, sorry, who is distant and waiting for you to mess up so he can punish you for your failures? Or is God to you like the God of Mount Zion, a God of justice, but also a God of grace and mercy. And so what's God like to you? What's your view of God? Marcionism was a religious movement based on the teachings of the second century heretic named Marcion of Sinop. Marcion was born in Sinop in AD 85 in the northern province of Pontus in what is now Turkey on the coast of the Black Sea. He was a son of a bishop. He was an intelligent, capable, hard-working, vain, rich, ambitious man. Marcion's theological theology was off-key, okay? There was a lot of errors in his theology. And the main root, the main issue with his theology was this. He refused to believe that the God of the Old Testament was the same as the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Marcion um, didn't refuse to believe that the God of the Old Testament was the same as the God of the New Testament. He viewed the God of the Old Testament as a God of wrath and judgment and anger, but he viewed the God of the New Testament as being gracious and loving. And so what did he do? He made his own version of the Bible. And what was his Bible like? It had no Old Testament. He removed the entire Old Testament, only had one gospel, the Gospel of Luke, with edits, and only had a few of the letters of Paul. That was his Bible. And what was that driven by? It was driven by 
his refusal to believe that the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. Why am I telling you this? This is why I'm telling you this. As we ponder the God of Mount Sinai and the God of Mount Zion, we must resist the temptation to believe that the God of Sinai is different from the God of Zion. We can see it like that. It's true that the New Testament gives us a fuller understanding of God and that we no longer relate to him based on the Old Testament requirements. Nevertheless, the God we worship is still the same. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. God is a God of love and grace and mercy, but he's still also a God of justice who will judge those who refuse to live their lives according to his ways. Arkin Hughes clarified this. He says, both mountains, Sinai and Zion, reveal the true God. Neither can be separated from the other. God is not the God of one hill, but of both. Both visions must be held in blessed tension within our souls, consuming fire and consuming love. And so I wanted to just take a break from this to say, like, as we look at like God, the Mount, Mount Sinai and God of Mount, it's very easy for us to look at that God and go, okay, he's changed now. And yes, we are living in a culture now where we prefer the God of love, right? We love the God of love. We love the God of grace. But we must never forget that God is a God of justice. And he's a God of wrath. And there are consequences when it comes to not living the way he's called us to live. And so the question is, how shall we then respond to the one true God of the Bible? How should we respond to the God of consuming fire and the God of consuming love? First, we're to respond to this one true God with wholehearted obedience. With wholehearted obedience. Look at verse 25. It says, see that you do not refuse him. Um, who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Um, if you've been with us through our study of the book of Hebrews, we've come across um, se several passages that are known as warning passages. And these warning passages have been intense, all right, for us to study and understand. And verse 25 is the fifth and last warning passage. First, um, we're urged to not refuse him who is speaking. Um, to refuse in this context is to decline or to shun, avoid, or reject someone. It connotes the deliberate refusal to listen to someone who is speaking. And so, who's this speaker that we're urged not to reject but to listen to? The obvious answer is God himself. God has been speaking and we have been urged and exhorted not to refuse him or reject what he's saying. And so the question is, why is it necessary to listen to God? Look at verse 25 again. It says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Here we go. For if they 
did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Um, who are the they? What is this referring to? This is referring to the people of Israel when they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And during this time, they had a rebellious attitude, hard hearts. And as a result, they rejected God's word by repeated disobedience. So grievous to the heart of God was their willful disobedience. What did he do? He severely punished them. And so what the author of Hebrews is helping us see this, if, if the people of Israel did not escape the wrath of God when they disobeyed his commands, verse 25 is warning us that the judgment on those who reject him, who warns from heaven, is even more certain. In the past... In Old Testament times, God spoke to his people through the law and his prophets. But now he has spoken to us in person, face to face, through his son, Jesus Christ. And so the people of Israel suffered severe punishment when they refused to listen to God through his laws and the prophets. And as a result, if we refuse to listen to the very words of God spoken directly from the lips of God the Son, Jesus Christ, and the scriptures, we will not escape his judgment. In Christ, God has given his best and final revelations. Those who reject his voice as it now speaks from heaven in the gospel will not escape his judgment. If there is an unstoppable penalty for disobeying God's earthly message, how much greater will the penalty be for disobeying his heavenly message of grace through his son? And so the only response that makes sense is to obey God's voice, is to listen. God has communicated clearly who he is and what he expects from us through his son and the scriptures. And we are being exhorted to listen and obey. So, how we respond to the God who is a consuming fire and consuming love, we wholehearted, we have a wholehearted obedience. The second way we're to respond to the God of consuming fire and the God of um, consuming love is by reverent worship, with reverent worship. Look at verse 26. Um, it says, at that time, his voice shook the earth. In other words, when God spoke from Mount Sinai, um, what happened? His voice shook the earth. It was terrifying. Let's keep reading. But now he has promised. And so God has made another promise. And so what's this promise God has made? Keep reading in verse 26. 
Yes, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This is a quote from the prophet Haggai. And one author says, God's promise to shake not only the earth, but also the heavens refers to a final cataclysmic judgment of all creation. And in this final cataclysmic judgment of all creation, um, all creation will be shaken and removed and the material universe will pass away. That's a lot. I know that was. And if we had time, we'll unpack it. So you're going to have a great time in community group, all right? We need to move on. This is verse 27 says, this phrase, verse 27, yes, yet one more, indicates a removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And so all of creation will be shaken. All of creation will undergo severe judgment so that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. What are the things that cannot be shaken what are the things that will survive God's ultimate judgment verse 28 therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe so this is reminding us that there will be a time there will be a time of cataclysmic judgment and all of creation will be shaken but the kingdom of God will not be shaken it will remain and so if you're a follower of Jesus you are part of this unshakable kingdom no matter what happens here on earth if you're a follower of Jesus, your future is built on a solid foundation that cannot be destroyed. And so don't put your confidence in what can be destroyed. Instead, build your life on Christ and his unshakable kingdom. And so the question is, how should we respond to all of this? Verse 28 again tells us, it says, we, shall be, we should be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus we should offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. On the other hand, those who fail to be thankful and refuse to worship God appropriately should be reminded of this, for our God is a consuming fire. There is a big difference between the flame of a candle and the raging fire of a forest fire. We cannot even stand near a raging fire. It's uncontrollable. Try it. Don't try it. <laughs> I said try it, then I realized that, oh gosh, I shouldn't be encouraging people. You never know. Um, <laughs> We cannot stand in front of a raging fire. It's uncontrollable. In a similar way, God is not within our control either. He cannot be contained. That's why he's described here as a consuming fire. Yet, the good news is that God is a God of passion, of compassion. 
He has saved us from sin and he will save us from death. But everything that is worthless and sinful will be devoured by the fire of his wrath. Only what is good, dedicated to God and related to his kingdom will remain. And so, concluding question is, what are you investing in? Are you investing in God's lasting kingdom? Have you been dedicating your life to God's unshakable kingdom or have you been consumed by the temporal things of this world? In the late 1950s, a young missionary named Jim Elliott and four of his companions went on a mission trip to take the gospel to a group of Indians in the rainforest of Ecuador. When Elliot and his companions arrived and met the Indians, everything was friendly. They had really good conversations, and Elliot and his friends left those conversations feeling encouraged and feeling hopeful that this is an amazing opportunity for them to get the gospel to this tribe. But when Elliot and his friends came back two days later, the same Indians who had been friendly to them killed them with spears. The world viewed this as a wasted life, a tragedy. But as George Guthrie says, the terrible moments must be weighed ultimately on the scales of eternal values. Seven years before, this life-ending mission trip, Jim Elliot wrote the following words in his journal. He is not a fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This section of Hebrews has challenged us to live in light of that which cannot be lost. And that which cannot be lost is God's unshakable kingdom for which you have been given through Jesus Christ. We gain what we cannot lose by trusting in God's grace of the past, present, and future, heeding and obeying his word and living lives of worship that are marked by reverence and awe. In other words, praise God that we are no longer at the foot of Mount Sinai. Praise God that he's no longer distant. Praise God that when we get close to his presence, we are not terrified by him. 
Praise God but that right now, because of Jesus' finished work on the cross, because of all that he did for us, we can, with confidence, approach God's throne with boldness, knowing that he's a God of love, grace, and mercy. Yes. Amazing. And so, church, let's invest our lives. Let's, in, let's invest all of our resources and everything we have in God's kingdom. Because he is not a fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for these truths. God, I pray that in the days and the weeks to come, you would help. You would give us more understanding. You would give us, um, give us an understanding of these truths. And may what we learn encourage and inspire us to live the lives you've called us to live. May we commit and resolve to invest our lives for your kingdom purposes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.